Welcome to the Afros and Knives podcast, the interview series that elevates Black women's profiles and stories working in food and beverage, hospitality, food justice, food science, and food media. I am your host, Tiffany Rosier, and this week's conversation is with talented chocolatier and owner of DC-based Petite Sur, Ashley Pearson. Uh, Ashley has done time in kitchens in Paris. She has spent time at the French Laundry, Marcel's in DC, and Per Se. Uh, her shop in DC offers beautiful and delicious chocolates and confections, and those are those are available for um, delivery or available locally. So definitely. Um, hit up the website and order us a box or two or three or five for yourself or for a friend. Um, She was just so gracious and generous during our conversation and it was an absolute pleasure to chat with her. Um, I'm definitely adding chocolates from Petite Sur for my uh, gift guide this year and as I've been turning over an idea of a gift guide in my mind, I decided I wanted my gift guide to be less about holiday giving and more about figuring out how to be generous all year. And yes, generosity is more than just um, physical or tangible gifts, but sometimes there are moments that, um, that you know, giving something tangible or physical is, uh, is the best way to go. So as I pull this gift guide together, it might be released around the holidays, but it's just something that you can hold on to all year. And when you kind of are thinking of someone or just want to send them a quick thank you or I'm thinking about you and it can be anybody, um, you know, you can turn to the gift guide and find something from a black owned business and um, and send something out. So. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that gift guide situation. That's where that's headed. Um, and speaking of gifts, uh, I, I had another thought about a cookbook to put at the top of your your list for gift giving and that is if you haven't heard of it and you've been living under a rock for the last year uh, is the brilliant collection of uh, recipes by Tony Tipton Martin in her book called Jubilee um, and a quick congratulations to her for becoming the newest editor at Cook's Country um, over at America's Test Kitchen um, well actually it's more like congratulations to Cook's Country for having Miss Martin at the helm she is an absolute gift um, and if you haven't got if you haven't gotten your copy of Jubilee, I I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, it's more than a cookbook; it's history. Uh, she brings some of the unsung masters of American cooking into your kitchen through this collection. Um, the the dishes are evergreen; they never age, and there's always they always have something new to say. They're always fresh, um, so be sure to get one for yourself and then send one to a friend um, or a family member who loves to be in the kitchen. Actually, you know what? This book actually will, if you aren't one to be in the kitchen, you don't necessarily like to follow recipes. This is actually one of those books that, that work for just about everybody on a lot of cooking levels with a lot of different cooking interest. So um, again, it's ideal to go at the top of the list of any type of uh, gift giving you might be doing in the next year or so. Um, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to the Afros and Knives patrons for their support. None of this would be possible without you. Um, to become a patron, be sure to visit the Patreon, my Patreon page. It's patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives. Um, if you love the podcast, of course, be sure to follow, subscribe, share, and comment. It definitely makes a huge difference, more than you know. Um, and yeah, so that's it. I'm going to, to get out of here with this intro and um, you guys can listen into my conversation with Ashley. My dad's from Baltimore and my mom is from Washington, D.C. So um, I grew up actually in Baltimore. Um, and then as an adult, I moved to D.C. where my career got started. So I started off um, at a restaurant at called Marcel's in Washington, D.C., my first restaurant kitchen. And I walked in basically totally green as a biology college student. And mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to bake for a living. I just kind of never had the courage to say this is what I wanted to do. But I'd come to the realization in my life that that's what I wanted to do. So I kind of walk into this restaurant super excited and I just kind of go to the chef and say, you know, I want a chance to work in a kitchen. And he says, well, what qualifications do you have? And I said, well, 
Uh, I'm a biology student, so I can follow directions. I've done great in chemistry labs, and I feel I will be well suited in a pastry kitchen. That so, is ideal um, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, go ahead. He's looking at me a little crazy, but I'm like, you can see it here. I got an A on organic chemistry, and, and I, I think I'll be a match. So he gives me an interview with the pastry chef the very next day. The pastry chef says to me, you know what? This is not going to be like food network. People come in here and think, you know, you're just going to kind of turn it on, and you're going to be great, and it's going to be a fun environment. Um, it's not going to be that way. And he says, I'll give you a chance, even though you, you shouldn't work here at a restaurant of this caliber. But if you can last for six months, he said, I could use the hands. So fine. Um, I said, OK, I, I'm, I'm coming into all of this, mind you, with my one little uh, baking champion belt from my church picnic, you know, thinking, oh, I, if I won the church picnic at my church. You got it, on, you got it locked down, man. <laughs> I mean, if you can handle like a church critique, you are in good shape. <laughs> You are prepared for beat, kitchen life for sure. Yes. If I beat out, you know, the Deacon's strawberry shortcake this year. For, so. Like, really? Like, absolutely. <laughs> so, anyway, so he, he gives me a shot. Um, and it, it, it was very difficult, obviously. and But it turned into actually a very long and lasting uh, working relationship. I uh, became one of my first mentors, Chef Kujala, the chef there. And I'm still kind of affiliated with that restaurant today. So that was 10 years ago. Um, while I worked for that restaurant, I started as a pastry cook, worked my way up to uh, a pastry chef and also kind of a, a corporate position where I was helping out at all of the restaurants. There is a group of women who come to the restaurant often. Uh, they're called La Dame de Scoffier. Uh, they yep, have the DC yeah, chapter. Yeah, know them well. Uh -huh. Yes, I had no idea. You know, I'm still very green at this point. And at this point, also, I should mention, I've never been to culinary school. I'm just learning in the kitchen, kind of taking in everything day by day. And um, the ladies come in. They said that they loved the dessert and they wanted to meet me. And they encouraged me to uh, apply for their scholarship. So Ooh, actually, nice. mm -hmm. yeah. So actually a year later, I ended up applying for their scholarship and I was awarded the scholarship, which kind of led me on my way to Paris. And I attended Le Cordon Bleu in Paris for their pastry program. Um, and that really was kind of the point where I was like, okay, well, you know, this is kind of where I go from here. So from there, I spent a total of two years in Paris, came back, um, decided to work with Chef Thomas Keller at uh, Per Se. That really kind of gave me my foundation in chocolate making, and now I'm at my own business. Wow. I mean, Mr. I mean, Chef Keller, like that's definitely, for, for all of the, the, the current attitudes towards, um, <laughs> you know, the very male, white male dominated space at this point like chef keller still is the guy that you definitely if you end up in his kitchen um i'm sure you're surrounded by a lot of other talent besides himself and so yeah that's Certainly. definitely ideal training ground like if you can't go to culinary school like i mean find stage your way through a couple of really good kitchens and you absolutely. should be in good shape um I yeah, always, absolutely <laughs> exactly i'm like i went to Le, Cor Le cordon bleu in um arizona and yes. that was always the split of conversation. Like I had instructors who were like, yeah, you should do, you know, should go to school. Absolutely. And then you had other instructors who were just like, yeah, we're teaching you stuff, but it's nothing you wouldn't have learned um, over some time working in a kitchen. So I, I always right. tell people when they ask, like, should I go to culinary school? I'm like, you know what? I think if you can get some work experience before culinary school, yep. it's a better, it's a better preparation because then you'll realize what you're not learning in culinary school, you're already learning on the job. And so by the time you're done with the, the education process, you've had so much more experience on the other end that you can now put those two things together. So a I'm like, if I, if you, can, you know, I'm like, if you can do it, like work first, then school. But um, I know People how hard that is. Me, absolutely. People often ask me the same question, you know, what, what should I, should I go to school or should I stage in the kitchens or, and you know, I honestly think that, I mean, I, I worked professionally in the industry for uh, about four, four or five years before I even went to culinary school. And yeah. I felt very um, accomplished and I felt confident in the kitchen prior to my culinary training. And I think that my work experience allowed me to get the best out of my school experience. Um, there were some people in my class that didn't have a ton of actual hands-on kitchen training, 
Whereas I had the kitchen training, so I could ask the question for the next level. Okay, chef, I see you doing this, but why, you know, might you be doing that? Or how, how else can I use, apply that technique to this application? So you kind of get more out of it. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. And it's such a, like, it's, it's such a really great point to make is like, you know, firsthand that being, you know, having that experience behind you and being able to get into a classroom and like kind of dig deeper on those skills that they try to teach. Cause it's, you know, I tell people I'm like culinary school is just kind of you resting very lightly on each topic. You really don't get mm-hmm. any kind of like deep dives into a lot of things. So if you are already working, you can definitely take that life experience and come to the classroom with like, Hey, you know, we've done this. I'm, I, you know, I see what you're doing there. Can we dig a little deeper? And that, I mean, mm-hmm. that's just to the benefit of everybody in the classroom as well. Um, so to like your education, that difference between like, I guess, because most people, when they think either pastry chef or like baker, they, they, unfortunately they've now somehow managed to make it go, Oh, that's women's work. That's girls work. So it's not as serious. It's not as it doesn't take as much technical skill. And I'm just like, that is such garbage. I'm like, <laughs> work in food, specifically pastry and like baking is a, you might as well say they're working in STEM because yeah. that, that science and technology <laughs> angle, like it's, super strong if you decided to do that. And, and, and if they're honest with themselves, because I remember when I worked in my first kitchen in New York, mm-hmm. you know, I got the very distinct um, uh, impression that the reason I ended up doing pastry is because no one else wanted to do it, had the patience to do proper measurements and to be as precise as they needed to be to get consistent results. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much that they thought, oh, well, this is simple. And so, you know, we're going to leave it for like this one, the only woman in the kitchen to do. Mm-hmm. I felt like it's the exact opposite. It requires a tremendous amount of patience and um, as well as skill. And then a little bit of instinct that they just don't possess. And so, you know, this is why we end up, why I ended up doing it specifically. So with your culinary education, what, how did that differ? Like that traditional culinary education differ than your training for like becoming like a chocolatier, like really kind of honing in on that particular skill set? Like, did you have to tap into like some new, some new spaces in your brain? Um, did it make sense because you had like studied like chem and bio and was like, no, this makes sense. Like there's a chemistry to chocolate. It's, it's I w- definitely well I using the word easy even to this day yes, I, I'm like, <laughs> chocolate is 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 super fickle you have to just kind of you know wrangle it in at times but I think that um, I've always taken the approach that cooking and I mean I say cooking but I think it also applies to pastry and baking and chocolatiering it's all about control So that has been something that very early on I realized that cooking, baking, pastry making, and chocolates is about control. So if I can have this idea that I can control the atmosphere or, you know, cooking temperatures or ratios, but then I have room to kind of use improv and play and and do things Mm. like that. Um, I found that my formal training I do rely on that at times for my chocolate hearing now, but particularly all of that really came out of my time at Per Se. Um, and I do draw on obviously the science background because chocolate's very different. You have to prepare your medium before you can even begin to work with it. So mm. you have this product that's completely stable. You have to completely destabilize it then completely restabilize it. And then you can begin to think about how you're going to add pastry elements, but you can't even begin to think about what you're going to fill your bonbon with if you haven't controlled your chocolate. So if you don't understand concepts like, you know, latent heat of crystallization, you're going to say, Hey, this chocolate was perfectly in temper, but it sat at a room temperature a little bit too long. And now it's it's completely ruined. It's completely bloomed. So it's, it's just knowing all of these things. And I had to read a lot. I, it's a lot of science and it's a lot of reading, but I kind of, I kind of love that. Uh, it's kind of like my thing. I'm like, oh yes, yeah. so I'm like, you know, reading it like it's a novel. I'm just, I've always been that way. My family, we just kind of love science in general. So it's just, it's kind of natural for me. I just, I, you know, that is like the one thing I, I always try to push in conversations with like interns that I might've had or students or like parents of students who's like, oh, my kid wants to be in food or they want to work in food. And they always try to like 
either discourage them from doing it or they don't know how yeah. to steer them in a way that is um, that pairs well with like their natural abilities or their natural interest. And so mm-hmm. like for me, I'm like, does your, you know, does your child like science and technology? Do they like working with like the biology of something or the, um, the, the componentry of something? And they're like, well, well, yeah, they like taking things apart. I'm like, and then I always steer them towards like pastry and chocolate making because mm-hmm. it requires that kind of mind. You know, the ones who like to like riff a whole lot and they don't really like to follow any particular type of like rules or um, structure then it's like this is going to be challenging because you don't have a natural inclination to like want to work within that but I also have found in my time in my experience that having that kind of like rigid structure actually allows me to be more creative because I have like exactly you know and like there's a set of rules that apply to like this this foundation and then from there it like I can feel secure in my creativity because I know like I can always fall back to the science so as far as like transitioning from like working in restaurants into like what was the catalyst for you to like start your own business what was the thing that said okay it's time well, you know, when I was writing my scholarship for La Dame Scaffier, they asked me, like, why? Why? I mean, because you could have done anything with it. They're like, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to go to Paris? Why do you want to? And I, and I said, I want to go other places. You know, I'm, I'm someone who's been from a specific place, and I basically have never left it. <laughs> and while that was great, I said, I want to go out. I want to see what else is out there. I want to experience other things. I want to also, while doing that, solidify my technique because I don't want my technique my technique or lack thereof to be the reason why I can't tell my story through my food. I don't want to have marred techniques that kind of confuse my message. So I said, while I'm here getting more technique, I want to experience other cultures. I want to add to my story, which will add to my plate. But I told them mm. I wanted to bring all of that back home. I want to go just so I can come back and bring it back to my hometown. That was the most important thing to me. While I've always worked in restaurants, um, I felt after getting the chocolate experience, I just felt so compelled to focus on the chocolates. And I realized that that was gonna mean right away, I won't be in restaurants. I'm gonna kind of have to take a step back and if I'm gonna have my own concept, it's gonna have to be very small, very focused, Therefore, I'm going to focus on one area and one thing. And I said, how do I right now want to tell my story? What's the medium that I want to use? And I decided on chocolate because I felt that I could say so much in one bite and I could have so many different bites that could really give a clear idea of my story and what I wanted to say and how I was going to bring back all those experiences to D.C. Wow, that's that's, I mean, that's, I, you know, any, to anybody who has to like process their like next move that for me, that level of like self-awareness and um, introspection is like necessary, like to know yeah. like, okay, this is my life. This is who I am. What is the best thing to express that to the rest of the world? How can I like talk to people without talking to people and they know exactly who I am and understand like my worldview. So that is like, that's such incredible to do. And again, like people look at food and we're often not encouraged to look at how thoughtful that this work requires you to be. You mm-hmm. you really have to take in consideration so many other things outside of just like the the execution of the day in front of you. Like there's you know especially career decisions in the climate that we're in right now specifically. Like where you don't know if restaurant certain restaurants are going to remain open if you don't you don't know what parts right. of the industry will survive. And I think you know being working in this field you do have to have a tremendous amount of like introspective work that you engage with and go okay why am I doing this because like if I take it seriously at all, I know that feeding people is serious work and I want yeah. to be able to simultaneously express myself and and definitely um, give someone like something delicious to eat. But at the same time, like that, that relationship that you've built with a diner, even if it's just a few hours long, you are really trying to communicate with them through what you serve Absolutely. them. You're so trying to communicate, I mean, and part of you naturally, I mean, I think that if you truly love, you know, serving food and serving people and being in the hospitality industry, there's a part of you that's like, you know, also a nurturer. So you're trying to get so many components. I mean, you're thinking about, you know, 
um, how you can tell your story, your personal story, how you can nourish someone, how you can do something that's visually appealing, how you can do something for someone or make something that's you know giftable in my industry. So all of those things are kind of working together. And I know for me that wanting to kind of tell my personal story definitely meant removing myself from somebody else's establishment just for t- at the time being. Mm. Good. Removing yourself from somebody else's so you can actually... Because... Yeah, because I constantly found myself, even though I, I really enjoyed working for the chefs that I worked for, I constantly find my, found myself saying, okay, this is what I want to make. These are the ingredients I want to use, but how does it fit into their concept? How can mm. I, you know, I'm constantly editing, editing, editing. And I said, you know, I have this idea. I want to create this thing. But I know, for example, Chef Keller doesn't like chocolate with red fruit, so I can't make that. So <laughs> you're kind of thinking, wow. how can I just, how can I just, you know, for lack of a better word, just do me for a minute. How can I get that creative right. release? Because sometimes you're also kind of an artist, you know, you just want to say something and without it being censored or disrupted. And I kind of joke now that I make this bonbon. It's a, it's a black walnut bonbon. It has three layers. It has, you know, maple jam, black walnuts, and it has a black walnut ganache. And it's really tied to a cake that my grandfather used to make. So I took the inspiration of that cake that my grandfather used to make, that my dad makes, that I wish I would have, you know, actually paid attention to them when they were making it. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of think back to, you know, that that memories of that my dad would always share with me. And then, you know, you bring in kind of this aspect of things that I learned from per se, and then all my bonbons are hand painted. So I just said, what do I want this to look like? Or how does this kind of emote into a hand painting on a bonbon. And then you have a piece of chocolate that says all of those things. It says, you know, my, my training from Paris, it says my time at per se, but ultimately it speaks to my family's personal traditions. Wow. That now that, which is for me, a great segue to um, understanding, like, tell me a bit more about like your, your creative process. Like how do you approach a new bonbon? How do you approach a new project? Um, like what, what are the, what are the things you kind of look for um, as far as inspiration? And then like, what's your kind of your technical approach to like getting that, um, getting that to the finish line? So for the most part, for inspiration, I mean, it can sound silly sometimes, but I look at anything from like graffiti. I look at, you know, sometimes like, you know, we have the cherry blossoms here. I could see a color inspiration kind of anywhere. I saw this image the other day and it was a graffiti. And I said, oh, my gosh, those colors are so beautiful together. And Mm -hmm. I kind of take note of that. And I think about how I want to translate that. Um, And then often sometimes it's just a matter of okay, this is the season, it's this time of the year, it's, it's, we're going into summer, so I want to keep things bright, I want to keep things fun, and what's in season right now, okay, I'm going to use this ingredient, or I was able to get some, you know, Harry's berries, okay, so this is going to be strawberries, so let's go into reds and pinks, and, or something speckled, or we can be literal and make it look like a strawberry, or I can mm. kind of play around and just make it look like, you know, anything that's on my mind, the kind of the creative freedom is just kind of awesome because it's basically just doing whatever comes to mind. So really inspiration comes from seasonality, time of year and artwork in DC. All right. Uh, do you have any, uh, do you typically get like requests for something specific that you are, will kind of, Oh yeah, you know what? Let me, let me spread out <laughs> a little bit. Let me see what else I can do. Or do, do most people just kind of watch and go, I have no clue. So I'm just going to trust your judgment and you tell me what I should do and I will do that. So most of my clients, uh, they've known me for some time, a lot of, especially my wholesale clients, restaurants that, you know, buy my product. And they're basically just like, okay, we know you just do whatever you want because they know that's typically where they're going to get their best work Right is when I just kind of just, you know, do whatever I want. And I know I have even a floral client right now. And I told them, I said, Hey, every single time you get your bonbons, it's very possible. They're going to look different because I just kind of paint based on my mood. And everyone's like, oh, I love, that's cool, fine, sure, let's go with it. I'm like, okay, I'm still getting away with telling people that I'm just going to do whatever I want every time. And, and they trust you because they trust that at the end of the day, you're, they're hiring you because you respect the process. They know it's going to be beautiful. They know the style of your work. And so they just trust you. The only time where there's a, okay, it has to be this color or this range is when you're dealing with weddings, which is a whole other <laughs> kind of realm of... Um, I need this shade of pink or I want this shade of blue or this, you know, and then you kind of 
you know, respect the client's wishes and, and, and make it work for them. So. Okay. Sorry. I'm so sorry. My uh, okay. internet is just <laughs> no like, I'm watching the signal thing like on and off and I'm like, what is happening right now? Why are you being, and so finally like, cause I'm usually trying, I try to connect to Wi-Fi for like just for signal strength. And yeah. then it's like, oh, we're just going to be a regular cell service. So good luck with that. I'm like, thanks guys. Thanks. Regular cell service. Wish you the best. I was like, you're going to be just fine. I'm just like, yeah, I feel like Katniss Everdeen right now. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> anyway, um, thankfully, and thank God for editing. Um, so I was <laughs> like, oh, I get to edit around this thing. Oh, wonderful. Um, I was I was asking you about your, oh, like inspiration and, and, and all the things. And we were talking about the wall. Okay. Um, I will just skip ahead and we will, I will work through whatever this edit sounds like later on. Uh, <laughs> so for your, like, just, so starting your business and like what you've named it and what you, um, what your intentions were behind that. Um, just talk to me a little bit about like where this kind the concept for like petite came from. And then, you know, I know you wanted to bring all of those things, your, your entire story back to DC and like tell your story, um, through chocolate that way. So why like the brick and mortar and why, you know, why, like I why the name and um you know what when did you start your business and what were your plans for it and has it grown in a way that you expected or planned so my business right now it's called petit sir and that just means little sister in french um and i kind of joke that even at my age now i'm 31 and my brothers still say i am their little sister so it's just wow guys uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just an identity that I've always had. So I just was like, you know what, running joke in my family. Well, let's just go with it. So um, that's how I named the business. It's still very early and in stages. So um, I actually just got everything going in October. Wow, that is new. Okay, go ahead. It's <laughs> brand. It's completely. A, it's a startup. It's still very early. So it's brand new. Um, started in October. And then the pandemic hit right after the, my holiday season, right after basically Valentine's Day. And I've had to completely shift. So my original concept to start was just um, working with wholesale clients. And that was going very well. Just basically supplying restaurants, doing events, supplying um, floral shops, other people who wanted to have rec regular chocolate deliveries. And... I realized that post the pandemic, I really had to kind of pivot and work on getting more product direct to customer. So my business is actually housed within the first restaurant I actually worked in. So Why it's very you? full circle. So the first restaurant that I was telling you that I walked in with all that courage as a young bio student, I actually rent space from them and my business produces and works out of their space. So um, now I just managed to kind of pivot. I tried to start a website where I did some pop-ups just for Mother's Day and Father's Day and just to kind of wait until things kind of blow over and then kind of looking for next steps. But definitely just starting the business, I felt, was the right step after leaving, per se, <coughs> just in order to kind of bring things back, in order to just kind of get out my own products. So That's, I, I mean... That, to have to pivot that soon, it oh will. Boy. I mean, it will absolutely <laughs> give you a new set of skills on like how to be flexible in the economy, um, and will make you force you to be more creative about like how you're delivering the service, how you're delivering product to people, how you're communicating with like even potential new customers. Because I'm like, I tell people. You know, while we are absolutely focused on all of the people who have lost their businesses and who have lost jobs and like the challenges economically in that space, there's a vast majority of people who are just, you know, simply working from home. Their work transitioned, you know, very quickly and easily. Most businesses, some businesses were able to like furlough their employees or continue yes. to pay them. And like, so not everyone has like suffered um, in this way. And right. so to like keep your eye on like the prizes, like, okay, well, this is not going to be forever. So I need 
to figure out like how does this look later on and if anything was to happen at this level again in this lar- in, in where it affects large numbers of people um you know in specifically the business that I do like what does how quickly can I transit uh, tra- uh, change everything over if that ever happens again I think that was absolutely you know a lot of people are really thinking about the immediate and I'm just like guys you know anything can happen not just a pandemic a war like just anything can happen globally that will shift your business and you have to be able to like have a plan in place I don't think we've ever had to have like an emergency plan for like an entire industry and it's like it's so obvious now that we should have but like come on like we weren't yeah. thinking about that we were like literally thinking like day to day trying to keep ourselves open and functioning and like creative and enjoying our work so that's definitely a testament to you though like I mean instead of like throwing it in because you definitely could have like I mean October is not oh only- yeah <laughs> And you're gonna be like, you know what? Forget it. The universe is going to start we'll just take a pause. I'll just yep. <laughs> like I'm not doing this. I'm leaving. It's expensive to be here. I'm getting so out of here expensive. until someone tells me otherwise. But to like stick it out for sure is definitely requires a certain level of like strength and wisdom and and absolute planning. So I mean, it definitely made me realize. I mean, you have to ask. I had to ask myself really, really tough questions very early on, and I said, okay, well, you know what am I going to do? What's the end goal? And how can I continue to focus on the end goal during this? And I realized I had to completely restructure my business and the way that I was going to do business. So the biggest thing I learned from this is that before I kind of move into the space where I really want to just have a storefront and get the chocolates directly to people, I really want to make sure that there's a foundation for my website and the online business. And so the importance of having the ability to ship to customers in the event that people can't come to a storefront or they can't come to me directly, still being able to get product to them. So it's definitely made me think about um, how I'm going to move forward in my business, how I will structure my business you know, even when things go back to quote unquote normal or our new normal. Right, right. Because like, there's normal is not a word I would be using. Normal is normal. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't think we can introduce that back into society just yet because, like, mm-hmm. not, none of this is normal. I always tell them, like, we're in the middle of an election year. There's all of these elections yeah. happening at local levels as well. And then you have, like, a, an uprising, a social uprising. And, absolutely. Like, like, you just keep adding these interesting components. Like, no one's talked about. Things that got lost. Like, I think some weird announcement from the government about UFOs at some point. It's just 2020 has been really interesting. I've definitely yeah. eaten my weight in chocolate because of this <laughs> as well. Um, it's necessary. I find like it's medicinal almost. And yeah. Yes. So I just, I would consider, I would put you in that space, like as an essential worker, um, <laughs> I feel like chocolate is essential to a lot of the survival of the people at this point. Um, for, so for someone who is a black woman in this space, like, yes, um, because you just don't see very many black faces in the world of chocolate, um, especially like competition level or like they're creating massive sculptures that you can literally probably like live in, um, you know, it's just, you know, an occupy and set up residence and get mail at. But for you, like, what has that experience been like? Because I know it's not heavily dominated by, there's not, I mean, not even close to dominated by black voices and black faces and black people. And so, you know, to like know that the origins of the cacao itself and chocolate itself is like so mm-hmm. deeply rooted in a lot of African history and indigenous Absolutely. History, like for us, I find like, you know, why don't more of us do this work? Because it so naturally falls into our space and um, it's so agriculturally connected to the rest of the world. And it's a product of, a, it's an end product of a plant. And so like, what has your experience been like being kind of like the only brown person in the room of, you know, to, for lack of a better uh, analogy? I mean, I think that, I mean, I have been a pastry chef for 10 years, but more specifically, I've been in the chocolate space for about the past three years. And I think I can say from the beginning of my career, you know, you start your your work. I'm I'm in the restaurant. It's one of my first few days, my first weeks. And you're just kind of looking around, wondering when 
okay, I'm just, you know, looking for a few people that look like me just for some comfort level or just seeing kind of how things are going here. And I quickly realized this industry is not full of people that look like me. It's just, it's just not. And so, you know, you're looking for people who you think will mentor you or people you just want to, you know, have a, a, a chat with about what you're doing and how you're working and, and working in these tough environments and what it's been like, and you just don't see it. And I think that for me, I felt there were a lot of challenges, just especially in some of the more formal environments like Paris, working in some Paris kitchens, being at Cordon Bleu, and I will say working in the Michelin environment, uh, the two Michelin environments that I did work in. Uh, I think that a lot of it was mental for me. So overcoming mm. this hurdle of wondering, what are people, how, are, how am I being perceived by being the only one that looks like me working here? What are people thinking of me and what are people's perceptions? And I quickly realized that I had to release some of that in order to be successful in those environments. I had to think about how I was going to excel every single day. Wow. How I was going to be kind of, quote unquote, undeniable. And I thought that technique was the only way to do that. You know, always be running, always moving fast, always yes chefing, always kind of just fitting into the system that they had already set in place so that I could get the information and the knowledge that I needed to be what I wanted to be. I think when people of color, black people specifically are in these spaces, you have to ask yourself, what do you want to get out of it? What's the end goal? And sometimes you realize you have to go into this relationship realizing I'm going to give them something, which is my hard work and, you know, my dedication and everything that I've got. But what am I going to get back? I'm going to learn new techniques. I'm going to understand the inner workings of a large scale production. I'm going to take those things away from it all. Um, but you do worry, how are people perceiving me? Are people thinking that I'm, I, I'm capable of cooking or preparing cuisine that's not quote unquote typical for me or for someone that looks like me. Mm. And you ask yourself, is it kind of, is it okay for me to be making French pastries or, you know, or for someone who wants to make Italian food or anything you're asking, is it okay for me to step into this space? Can I make this food authentically? Can people, do people think I can create this authentically? And I think the idea behind all of that is just realizing that as black people, we can do anything. It's, it's up right. to us. You know, we can do food that speaks to something we had when we were young. We can do international. We can do anything and still put our spin on it or just speak to it from a very technical way. And once you get to that point where you realize that it's up to me, I think you start to feel some freedom. But it definitely felt a way to kind of live black and work Michelin. You'd feel that. You feel that 100%. Wow. Now the, that idea of, I guess for lack of a better term, it would be like appropriation. Like, you know, when you sit in the kitchen and I think people fail to remember, like we're cooking from like French techniques. We're cooking really old, like French recipes, French sauces. You know, if you have a very restaurant or very, um, geographically specific restaurant we're like oh we're cooking from like we cook from recipes that are from like the south of italy and that but your entire kitchen crew looks you know pretty diverse mm -hmm. considering and it's like no it's not going to be like an entire italian family in the back you know in the kitchen exactly this meal for you it's going to be a number of different types of people who might not share a um a, a specific genetic makeup and so like that idea of appropriation has got is definitely one of those things that we can't we, we don't escape it any more than anyone else does but I think because of the origins of our existence in the country you know around slavery we didn't have a choice but to appropriate those foods in order to do our jobs and so we're used to kind of taking what's in front of us um, no matter where it's from no matter where it's based and turning having to turn it into something and so it's um oh let me get this fire truck a minute to <laughs> blow by here. I'm like, what is going on now? <laughs> okay, I think I think we know friends. I think we know you're out here and you're doing <laughs> it. You're doing it. Okay, there we go. Um, so like the um 
to to the point of like origins and coming back to you know like geographical the geographical home of a lot of the ingredients that we have to work with every day um have you really been have you been able to like touch base or check in with kind of the origins of chocolate and has any of that like influenced any of your work you know that where the whole i where it's from and who was making it you know hundreds or thousands of years ago and um how it found its way to north america so have you been able to like trace any kind of like african history or um you know have a story to tell based on that history um, that has kind of influenced your food? Because I know like you're surrounded by a lot of other cultures and a lot of other countries when you're producing food for a restaurant or for clients. And so like to kind of find that space in yourself on your own history and your own ancestry, has that had any impact on your work? You know, it's definitely something that I think about. And I definitely went through this long period where, you know, you do a lot of research about, you know, cacao, the cacao seed and where it comes from and best places it comes from and, you know, how it's harvested. And I mean, you do start to look at areas like, you know, like Ivory Coast and all these places who are actually producing some of the best cacao seeds and, you know, the raw products that we actually eventually get to use in, into our, our chocolate. Um, and I can't say that I've actually had the opportunity to, you know, even go to those places, but I can say that I have done a lot of research and I definitely think that there should be more talk about the producers and where things kind of originate. And like you said, geographically, how that should relate back to our end product. But I can't say that that's been a large part of just my process. Um, My process, really, like I said, with chocolate, I didn't even really get deep into chocolate until I was I was made chocolatier, head chocolatier of a restaurant. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I'll figure this out, I guess. I'm going to do that. But I definitely you spend a lot of time, you know, reading about the origin of the product. And there are some times, you know, you do kind of raise your eyebrow and just say, why don't we talk about this more? We spend Mm -hmm. so much time talking about, you know, the final product, which is this small bonbon that I've manipulated a hundred times over, but we never talked about how we got to the Fev, the one piece of chocolate that I used to melt down to create all of these things. We never talk about all the work that went into, you know, making of this product, which I'm glad to see that a lot of makers are starting to kind of get on the map and we're starting to see more recognition, but there's definitely a lot more work in the industry to do with, you know, fair trade and acknowledgement in general and how that will eventually affect our end process. But I do think, as we see more black chocolatiers in the industry, hopefully as a, as a group, we will help to make that transition and shift that focus, which will also translate into us producing things that are relevant to those areas. Right. Now the talking about like fair trade and, um, and sourcing, what is your current, like, how are you sourcing um, beans now? Are you doing, are you starting from like the, that point or are you just, um, are you getting the, the, everything already processed in and then you're going from that point. Um, so yeah, so like, what's your, what's your, um, what's the word for your supply chain look like right now? So for me, I don't do anything regarding like bean to bar. So okay. that's not a process with the space that I have. I wouldn't even be able to do it at this point. I think it's something that getting larger, I would like to see myself producing my own chocolate, you know, and then having the ability to source and using my dollar power to say, you know, I'm going to buy from you, you, you know, this from this area and there's fair trade and I'm happy with the supply process. But right now I just look to purchase the best quality chocolate that I can get my hands on. And there's some local chocolate, but for the most part, I use Valrona and sometimes Michelle Cuisel. Oh, okay. All right. Is there a, uh, for the folks who aren't aware or are a little uneducated about chocolate and like types of chocolate, qualities of chocolate, um, give me like a, the, the quickest breakdown, like the quickest, uh, like down and dirty breakdown you can give me about like chocolate when people are going into purchase chocolate, what they should be looking for, um, you know, how the different percentages work. And then, um, you know, kind of a, a, a general idea of like when you're buying chocolate off the shelf, like an M&M or a <laughs> 
compared to something you would find in like your shop with your service? Like what are those big differences for people? I think when I was, it, strangely enough, when I was in culinary school, I worked for Godiva Chocolate in one mm-hmm. of their locations. So it was like a really like quick and dirty education. However, it was interesting enough for me to keep asking questions. And I think a yeah. lot of my later on like my experience with um customers is uh, me talking about like the origins of chocolate and the things that they're tasting and why you know why they taste what they t- how they why they taste what they taste like and why the, like the process of uh tempering is important and all those things and so we spent some time i spent some time you know at least around it uh but not nearly it's probably enough information that i have gleaned to like make a more intensely informed choice, but I do try to like, I, I count myself a little more educated as far as like standing in front of <laughs> a, a selection and going, oh, this this makes sense to me. I think I understand what's happening here. So yeah, Absolutely. give the people a quick tutorial on like how to pick a good chocolate and like explaining what those differences are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, well, to start, we can talk about percentages. So I think a lot of people are, are wondering why are they telling what what is this percentage on this bar or or why would I need to know this information and the quickest way to kind of look at percentages is kind of the the lower the percentage the less of the actual raw product that you have so you're going to have more additives so let's say you know from the scale of zero to 100 100 percent is going to be completely unsweetened no additives it's just chocolate that is completely there are no additives so it's going to be no no sweetener no anything like that as you go lower all the way down let's say you have a 40 percent chocolate so that's going to be a milk chocolate you know you've added more things you know additives and sugars and sweeteners to give you that um, different flavor profile so that's kind of how you look at the percentages and whether you're going from a light chocolate to a dark chocolate or a sweet chocolate to a not sweet chocolate um, regarding kind of the flavor profiles, uh, chocolate is very much like coffee in the sense that the soil is going to speak to the acidity and the fruitiness and all those little small notes that you'll get. So depending on what area that those cacao seeds came from is going to tell you a lot about how your chocolate and the final taste is going to taste. Um, Basically, when you go to a artisan chocolatier or somebody who's, you know, making bonbons, the difference in, in what you're seeing there is somebody who has taken chocolate, they'll choose a percentage and they have to, you know, hand temper it and they're adding a lot of additives and creating kind of a specialty product, just mm-hmm. putting a lot of TLC into that one product as opposed to kind of when you're buying Hershey's, you know, it's a very mass produced product that, it's still delicious for a lot of people, but when you're going to a small chocolate shop, you're really paying for a lot of attention to detail, a lot of specific techniques. You're not going to have a product that's full of a ton of preservatives. So I know my bonbons can't sit on shelves for ages. They're, they have all very fresh ingredients that require you to eat it within a very short period of time. So you're kind of paying for something that's that's real, that's natural, that was handcrafted just for you. And then you have the extra benefit of kind of the beauty of it, whether it's hand painted or specially molded into individual shapes that have been chosen, you know, by the chocolatier. So you're, it's just kind of all those little little things. And when you're going to purchase at any chocolate shop, you should be making sure everything is shiny. Chocolate should always be very shiny. They should have a good snap, which means the temper was done very well. I know for me personally, I still temper all of my chocolate by hand. I don't use any oh, machines. Wow. Yeah, so I will melt down sometimes six or seven kilos of chocolate and I will temper it and I will be maintaining that bowl of chocolate throughout the entire day with no machines, no, no anything. So it's, 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 you're, you're paying for a lot of experience and for someone to really keep a really close eye and, and that like really specific attention to detail to get something that's really precise. And not to say that you can't do that with the machine because you definitely can, but I like to kind of go the old school route for now yeah. just to kind of baby the chocolate. So yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, just, I'm, I feel the same way about like meringues and whipped creams. I still do them by hand. For, <laughs> I, just like, I just like the connection. Um, yeah. With that in mind and like understanding where like, you know, the basics of chocolate for most people, it's one of those things where it's hard to think about how something like that evolves and like kind of keeps refreshing itself and becoming new. So mm-hmm. it, what what trends are you seeing around 
around um, like what's being made, ingredients that are being used. Um, what can we like expect in the next few years around like this idea of like what flavors are happening and um, how people are approaching chocolate at this point? I think the biggest thing that we're seeing is actually, you know, the hand painting, which is something that's pretty new. And uh, this idea that chocolate doesn't have to just be brown. So I think that's kind of, you know, the movement that people are in now is that they can be all different colors using different molds so that you're getting different shapes, just kind of having this visually striking image um, that we're not necessarily used to when you would go to a classic chocolate shop. I also think that we're trying to kind of get more components into one bite. So a lot of things we're seeing now is, you know, how we can have one bonbon with, you know, four or five layers and how we can kind of get the whole idea of a plated dessert into one bite. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that moving forward, just hyper seasonality, which you don't always kind of equate to chocolate because it's being made by you know, artisans and chocolate makers who are, you know, pastry chefs and, and also chocolatiers. So they're kind of merging these two worlds. So I think a lot of that. Um, I know me personally, I try not to focus too much on the trends. I try to focus on just what's at the end of the day, yummy and really right. delicious because I do think that there is room to quote unquote, just do too much. Mm. And I think sometimes if you're not careful, I, if you if you if you're sometimes doing too much, you forget about kind of the spirit behind chocolatiering and how it all started and how some of those really classic cordials and confections are just very delicious at their core. So I try not to do anything that's so um, in the moment that it kind of messes with the technique and results in something that's maybe more beautiful than it is delicious. So that's something that I always try to kind of focus on because the most important thing is that it's, it's delicious. I mean, that is a life philosophy as well. <laughs> not just focus on these aesthetics. It needs to taste good. It needs to taste good. It has to taste good, guys. Like that is like the lesson to take home with you is it has to taste good. Um, It has to taste good, and I honestly think as I'm growing in my career, I'm learning more and more is that it's okay to be simple as well. I mean, Mm. at the beginning of my career, I was always wanting to just put so many things on the plate. I want to show every. I want to show every person every technique. Oh, good lord! That's exhausting. Oh my god, that's exhausting. Yes. Especially in pastry, you're like, oh, I can add a twill. Oh, I can add a chocolate decor. Oh, I can add a some sauce here. And it's just, as I get more confident and more mature and more just kind of confident to, to just say what I want to say and do what I want to do, I'm totally fine putting, you know, two things on a plate, three things on a plate and saying, listen, eat these three things. It'll be the best three things you've had. Just, I'm, right. I, I know that these th- three things work together and it, you're going to enjoy them. It's just about having a level of confidence. So I think that translates to sometimes, you know, simplicity is also really beautiful. Exactly, exactly. And it's just like, oh, the, the simpli- sim- simple things, just they really honestly just don't have anything to hide behind. And so for mm-hmm. me, I'm like, if, you're, if you are confident in your talent, um, and even in an effort to get better at it, like serve it as simple as possible because that feedback is so authentic on the other side of it, because there's no real, you know, no one has to like overcomplicate, um, you know, what's in front of you and they can give you a response to it in the most genuine way possible. Cause they're not trying to work by like nine layers of something weird <laughs> that they don't understand and they don't know how it's going to taste, but like something super simple, like really allows you to connect so quickly with what's happening on a plate and what's happening in the, um, you know, in a presentation of anything. It's just like, Oh, yourself. No ingredients just for shock value. Exactly. Exactly. I'm just like, we want to build a long-term relationship here and I'm not going to show you all the goods up front. Like, let's just, you know, let's move our way into this a little slowly. So well put. Exactly. Oh my God. Um, For the, like, for, like, going forward into the future, of course, like, thinking about, like, the fact that you just started and it's like, oh, I have to already consider, like, okay, what does this look like in just the next few months? Um, But, you know, to fast forward into, like, three years or five years where um, we have found a new way to live and a new way to work, what are, do you have any ambitions that far out that you've been thinking about? Like, where do you want to take your brand and what do you want it to do and and how you want it, how do you want it to impact the rest of the world? 
I think about all those things very regularly because when you're starting a brand, you never know where it's going to go. So I want to make sure that even as small as it is now, that it has core values, it has a mission statement, and that I know where I'm trying to go. So as I bring more people on, they can share in that philosophy with me and they can make sure that they want to go in the same direction. So for me, I mean, in the near future, I'm definitely looking to just create a very small focused boutique that only features chocolate. Uh, just so people can come in and just see a visually striking image of really cute, uh, colorful, bright, bright bonbons that they can choose from. Beyond that, um, I do think I'll probably tap into pastry, maybe seeing some pastry uh, projects going on and moving forward. And then I think even more so just socially and in the times we're in, I've really been thinking about what is my platform? What, what can I do with my platform? What, mm. is, what am I going to do with what skills that I have? And I really think that it's very important to start to portray images of more people that look like me, Black people doing things that I've done. Because I'm really, I don't want people to say, oh, wow, it's so unique that you did that. Or, oh, right. wow, you know, you went to Paris. And I'm like, well, yeah, a lot of people have. But people go to Paris, um, like, it's cool. You, yeah, you may be startled because I'm telling you I went there. <laughs> <laughs> or that I worked in a Michelin restaurant and and I want for the next generation, I want them to do it way better than I did. I want them to, I want it to be a new normal. I want young people to be able to read stories and look at things of, you know, people of color doing extraordinary things in the industry. And if that's what you choose to do, if that's what you want to do, it's completely okay to do that. So just trying to get some imagery and some things out, just encouraging people to pursue any dream and to take it however far they want to take it, whether that's opening a soul food restaurant, whether that's working in a Michelin restaurant, whether that's having your own spice company or opening your own chocolate factory, whatever it is, I think there needs to not be this kind of wall of insecurity that I know I had going into it because there's so many levels of things and reasons why, you know, you hesitate and I want people to not hesitate. So definitely just moving forward with that social image and seeing how, what platforms I can use to just kind of create a new normal in my community and starting in, in the community is probably just, you know, how I'll focus on moving forward just with my business, growing my business and kind of growing my social message. I love it. Uh, the, the because the education component is so important, and of course, bringing on you know new talent and bringing people into your space once you've gotten large enough to like actually support like employees and uh, interns and things like that. What what can we do right now for young people who are like paying attention and they're like, I want to be in food, but I don't want to be in food in any of these capacities, and then they discover what you do and it makes sense for them. What path? What what can you help them with, or what can you tell them to do, like kind of in the path or in the in the process of getting there? I think the biggest thing is to take the risk of if you see something you want to do, is just taking the time to a commit to it. Really, I mean, for a young person, really deciding is this what I really want to do? And if you see, you know, let's say someone who's a chocolatier and you see they're making bright and colorful chocolates and saying, okay, I want to learn how to do that. Do your research first. Do your research mm -hmm. about what a career looks like, what this industry looks like, what the hours look like, what the dedication and commitment look like, how that will affect your social life. And then ask yourself, are you willing to, to go down that road? And if you say yes to all of those things, start knocking on doors. You know, okay. you have to start knocking on doors. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to when I have a space where I can not only open my door, but seek out, you know, these young people who want to learn these things and get these skills. But you have got to be fully committed to giving up, I think, sometimes a little some social norms, you know, not hanging out on Saturday night because if you're in the restaurant, you're in the restaurant or, you know, having to give up some of those things, but diving very deep, studying your craft. And like I said, getting into those places where they'll begin to train you. And unfortunately, sometimes it is, you know, using your free time just to get your foot into the door and that turning into a major position. But it definitely takes a level of ambition and a lot of no's 
because yeah. a lot of people have told me no. And I think sometimes no's can be really hard, especially when you walk on a door and when they open that door, no one looks like you. And then they shut it and tell you no. You feel like, well, it's just not for me. No, it's yeah. for you. But you just have to figure out who's going to get you who's going to get you through the door, because where I started, there were not people that looked like me and they were not expecting me to do well. But going back to when you make yourself undeniable, when you're that person who they tell you, I remember being at, you know, per se, and they tell you, you can enter the kitchen at 530. Well, when you're outside at 515 waiting to be let in, you know, with all of your notes on how you're going to approach your day, you begin to become somebody where they say, you know what, this person, we've got to work with them because they're producing the best or they're giving it their best. And that's the type of people we want to work with. So really just push your push yourself, push yourself, push yourself. And that's the nature of this industry. And so young people should be prepared to just really be ready to give it 100 percent. Yeah. And and that's, you know, across the board, ladies and gentlemen, not just in your physical execution, but in your mind, like your mentals have definitely have to be in a space of like a hundred percent. And, and, you know, anyone who has worked in this industry knows like that can be taxing and fatiguing and exhausting and tiring, but there's, you know, there is a, a slight madness to the job that you tap into that other people just aren't aware of. I mean, I've, on numerous occasions tried to explain what I do for a living to people and like <laughs> the rigors of it. And they're just looking at you like, why would anyone do that? You're just like, but I love my work so much. You don't understand. It's insanity. I promise you. Um, so like this, and God, an hour flies by so fast. Um, so like these last <laughs> few moments, I'm like, geez, uh, I'll give you two questions and then you can answer those and then we'll kind of wrap up from there. Yeah, um, the sure. first one is how is your work your current work and expression of who you are and um, like what can what can people learn from like having a bonbon what can people learn from like engaging with you and then uh, the second question is like how can we support you we know it's a new venture we know we're in an odd place right now and you really can't like <laughs> yes buy all the things guys come visit and all that like that might not be possible but like what can we be doing for you so that like after all of this you know being in this moment doesn't feel like you lost ground at all, but like that you're able to kind of not just pick up where you left off, but really move ahead and uh, charge ahead even faster than you anticipated because you have all this like momentum and support behind you. Yeah. So I think when people have something for me or what they'll learn when they have something for me is just kind of kind of just my story, just this merger of just wanting to do something that's just super authentic, super clean, super focused, um, and just seeing how basically so many experiences can lead to just me giving you something that is not only delicious and visually striking, but just very personal. I think people will kind of feel a personal sentiment in how everything is made because, you know, every single thing is hand painted. So in a day when I'm making 1200 bonbons, you know, I've painted every single one. It was, it was a unique idea. So I think you kind of, yeah. So I think you kind of, you kind of feel that. And I think, and I would hope that people just um, feel that they're a part of supporting you know, a, a black owned chocolatier, which is a really unique thing and, and hopefully becoming less and less unique um, as we get more people trained and in, in, in the chocolatiering industry. But I mean, regards to um, how people can support, like I have a website right now. It's definitely a work in progress. And right now I'm moving towards shipping. So okay. hopefully within the next few weeks, when people go on petitesir.com, they will be able to order chocolates to be sent out to them around the country, which is the goal within the next few weeks. I just recently did kind of a cookie pop up, which is kind of funny because which is that's what I was eating the most during quarantine when I was like inside, <laughs> I'm making sablés and eating sablés and people are now asking me to make them sablés. So they'll also see some fun sablés that I've been shipping with people's chocolates. But most importantly, I just hope that while there's kind of been this shift of people for whatever reason, and which is supported to shop black owned and which has been really beautiful seeing people wanting to kind of come out and support black owned businesses. I'm hoping that when people, however they get to me, why they came to my website, once they order from me, that I can give them an outstanding customer service experience and an outstanding product that was beautifully packaged and, you know, 
timely and that people can stay then for that reason. Um, They may have come to me because I'm a black owned business and they found me on a list, but I'm hoping people see that within these black owned businesses, they're supporting, they're getting a beautiful and delicious product from so many companies. I mean, people are realizing that there, there's so many small companies who maybe they didn't have the advertising or that they didn't have, you know, this huge platform, but once you support them, you'll see you're there for a reason. You're there because they're making something so delicious. And I'm hoping that people will see that, that there's more to just shopping black owned than a trend. It's something that we can be doing moving forward because they are mm-hmm. great products made by black people. Agreed. Agreed. So, and your, your, your website and are you on, uh, I will, I know you're on Instagram. Is it the same yes. as your Instagram? Yes. So on my, in, my Instagram is at P E T I T E S O E U R D C. So on my Instagram, there's a link to my website, which kind of my Instagram is my main kind of form of advertising. People mostly hit me up on Instagram. So always, you know, people can feel free to do that. But ordering will be going through my website. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you to our guests for spending some time with us. And thank you for listening in and for being a part of the Flyest Click in podcasting. If you love these conversations, be sure to download, subscribe, comment, and share. You can get further connected with the Afros and Knives community by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to visit our website, afrosandknives.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Afros and Knives does this work only with the financial support of our Patreon community. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives and pledge your monthly support. We are working on expanding into video as well as offering patron-only content this year, and you don't want to miss out. Until next week, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be at peace.